0: Hello, this is Pam Electric Ghost. I have uh, Adam from the Fox Fires on.
1: Yep, that's right.
0: Cool. Is it just you today?
1: Uh, today it's just me, unfortunately. Um, everybody at the moment is kind of caught up um, with social distancing and everything and the like. Okay. Um, I work in home health care, um, so it's, it's a weird kind of mixed bag through this whole kind of thing, because, I mean, I could be a carrier and I'm not even necessarily like, sure at the moment but I so I have to go get an antibody test in like maybe like two weeks or so just to kind of like okay. I don't want to get too into that like if,
0: yeah uh, we don't yeah. want to go down that path but yeah yeah but um yeah we actually can send the link multiple people can be on the call but if they're not available it's fine um so, so um I'm fam Electric ghost and I've been interviewing indie artists for since 2018 and we have the fox Fires they're from the New York City suburban area
1: Yep, that's correct. Uh we're we were originally from Nyack, New York. Um it's like right in Rockland County just over the Tappan Zee Bridge or the Mario Cuomo Bridge or whatever you'd like to call it. Yep. Um but we recently relocated to uh New Jersey and we're in we're in Little Falls actually. Okay. Um, we're uh very close to the Woolbrook Mall.
0: Cool. So you're a shoegaze band. Uh you guys were formed in 2013. And um so if I if I said a band like um uh what it, like um <laughs> there's the, uh the, what what band would you say in the shoegaze um format are you like most most like, familiar with or people would have a reference point to?
1: Well, it's a very complicated question because we don't kind of identify ourselves as exclusively a shoegaze band. We kind of identify ourselves as a gaze band gaze oh. it incorporates a lot of the elements of shoegaze, especially like a lot of the ethereal dream pop kind of nature stuff if okay. we had to like say like maybe like one shoegaze band that I'd probably say we were most parallel to um probably are you familiar with the band called ride
0: no you know, I, I haven't heard them I know car seat headrest, which I don't know it sounds similar to the stuff that you do but um well, the
1: headrest is pretty good we're we're big my bloody Valentine fans it, um, yeah which, I know uh, them
0: too. Oh,
1: they're so good. That's that's how we kind of bonded when we first met. There was like a few select bands that we all just collectively really began to dork out together. And that was kind of how we were like, okay, this is kind of generally like the kind of direction we were moving. At the time, it was what people kind of, it, without us even like knowing, I think they called it sort of something akin to cringe, which I guess mm-hmm. means that it had like more of a, like a 90s alternative kind of.
0: Yeah, we kind of like. Their- like, if you think about the grunge era, right, and you had Nirvana and you had Pearl Jam, but then the pe- Smashing Pumpkins were kind of more progressive.
1: Yeah, that's the thing that, like, we like no one really talks about how the the Smashing Pumpkins are, like, the quintessential alternative band when you think about it. Because it's yeah. not just the elements of, like, everything else they got going on. There's a lot of really shoegazy things that go on in there, and it's really nice. It's ethereal. It's got that really thick, shaggy fuzz. And that's yeah. what like we always love. We always that was something that like, I even set my bass to like similar settings to what Darcy had hers to um yeah. in the nineties for her fuzz setting. I
0: really love that band because I I'm a I'm a keyboardist, right? I'm i I'm an electronic um, musician, you know, I play Moogs, I play Jupiters, and so a lot of what I tend to do in like Rick Wakeman, you know, is big you know, I'm a big fan, of, you know, Sun Sunra, you know. Kirby hancock so when i saw what what he, what what he was doing what billy was doing i'm like yeah i i like that because grunge was cool and it was kind of bringing back punk because we had the, all the hair bands and we had all this excess and then we got you know eddie vetter being really uh, real and kurt being real but then the cool thing with with the pumpkins is they kind of brought back that progressive thing well we can do anything we can have strings we can be punk we can be all over the map. And I always liked the fact that you could, they they were kind of like, you heard a whole album and it wasn't just one way, you know, that was something you really identify with
1: as well. It's, it's interesting you say that because that's kind of how we kind of formed the, like the, the sea gaze concept. It was partially because we like, like we have a lot of different influences and they all sound very ocean-y, but also because I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Bruce Lee. But he has this thing and it's um it's like a speech about it's like a metaphor about being like water because water can be like a lot of different things. Water can crash, yeah. it can be ice, and that's kind of how we always want it to be. It's why should we limit ourselves to what we can be as artists? And that's what the Smashing Pumpkins, like you said, like they've always done. It's great. It's they, they don't they don't limit themselves to the scope of like, we're a this kind of band, we're a that yeah. kind
0: of yeah, I mean, I was, I was watching the like documentary. I'm not to jump off, but I'm like, you know, a keyboardist, the modular synthesis. And, you know, he's got this massive modular synth he had. And, you know, he was playing with all kinds of really cool, you know, synths. And, and, and a lot of grunge bands were like, whether well, they kind of not were anti-synth. And they, they were kind of going, well, we, we can use them where it works. And like you said, like, what I always, like, that's why the sound I have is called Expansive Sound because I just take everything you know, and if it fits, it fits. If it's classical, it's rock, it's grunge, it's country, whatever, whatever fits my moment or mood. So I, I appreciate shoegaze or sea gaze and what you guys are doing. So we give it to the first question I ask of all the musicians I talked to is like, when did you first get into music? Like what age did you get into it?
1: Uh, for me personally, I was, I want to say I was like 11 years old. I was like 10 or 11, right around that time. Um, so, I mean, when I was younger, I kind of had, like, a weird relationship with music. It was almost like it was background noise for me. It was almost like it was there, but, like, I didn't really, like, there was, it didn't mean too much to me. It was just something that I could kind of do things along to. And, like, I, I grew up with ADHD. So, like, anything that, that, uh, that a four-year-old kid can kind of, like, run around the house and, like, shake a tail feather to, that, mm-hmm. that was my M.O. Um, And then I heard The Beatles for the first time. My mom, uh, she had Yellow Submarine on VHS. And she played it for me. I was like, oh, I can really enjoy this. This is actually kind of fun. There was something that was like, it it kind of sparked an interest. And then my mom got me into this other band um, called Good Charlotte at the time. And they had like this kind of like rebellious pop punk thing. And it was that Young and the Hopeless album. And I thought the songwriting was really well done. I thought it was like. I thought it was a little different from, like, what I was used to hearing, but I kind of enjoyed it. But the moment for me where I knew that this is what I wanted to do, and it's a weird one because most people don't expect this coming from me, um, it was Green Day, um, actually.
0: Green Day? Yeah, you know, Green Day was was a great band because they, which album was it? Duke? American <laughs> Idiot.
1: I, I'm gonna be honest with you, <laughs> and this is the one that always draws the line in the sand for so many people. But it's American Idiot for me. I thought the yeah at the time it spoke to me it was like something that I think came around at like just the right time. I think it was something that no one was kind of wanting to do. Like it wasn't like a cool thing to make a rock opera in 2004. It wasn't. Yeah, a cool it was thing. a
0: punk rock opera, you know. <laughs>
1: yeah, it wasn't, and it wasn't, and like a lot of people were like we shouldn't like say anything that has anything to do with the government whatsoever. And they're like, where is that written down? And and to me that was like, wow, they're actually taking a stance on something. And I appreciate the fact that a band was brave enough to actually say something and not be, like, complacent with everything. Not just Well,
0: because. it's funny because, like, the Sex Pistols, you know, they started punk because, you know, it's like God, you know, <laughs> you know the Anarchy in the UK and God Save the Queen, I mean, that was rebellious. But that's the nature of punk music. The first real punk band, you know, they got banned. Yeah. They got kicked off their label because they did God Save the Queen. And you know? that's the
1: most crazy thing, but it's so brilliant. That's the spirit I love of music. It's, it's they um. There's this one. There's this one. I can't remember who it is. I think it's um. It's a he's a poet. His name is Federico Garcia Lorca, and he said this thing a long time ago. And I kind of apply it to music in the same way. And it's like to pick up the pen, like, is the ultimate act of rebellion. I think that like. In many, oh yeah. It's because when you're basically like saying something that like is your truth, or you're speaking something, truth to power. And no one else is willing to. I think that's the most rebellious and punk rock thing in the world. I don't think punk rock has to be like cookie cutter, this, that, and the other. I think sometimes being punk rock is like the ability to basically say, I'm not okay with this. I don't care if everyone else is okay with this. It doesn't matter. I'm going to speak my mind for the sheer fact that I'm standing up for what I believe is right and I'm standing against what I believe is wrong.
0: Yeah, the Clash. I mean, the Clash were the quintessential. They were kind of like they were kind of like the way Rage Against the Machine is today, super political. That they were like, might. you know, almost totally on the left wing, and people were like, "What?" And it's it's been the nature of punk music that it's always had that kind of political end. It wasn't just, you know, literally. Yeah, the Ramones they just wanted to play hard, you know, and maybe they didn't really say anything. Um, but but some of the other punk bands from from the other side of the pond. They were political from the class. The sex pistols. That's the way it was going. Um, so that's interesting. I, I always loved Green Day because they brought that back. And you know, can I be kind of a music historian? I, I, I listen to like everything, and to seeing that kind of wave come back, um, it's just a cycle. You know, you always when you, things get a little too progressive or they get a little too out of hand, um, then we tend to get kind of that kind of real music, not that real, but the kind of feeling. I would call it a punk aesthetic where you feel like people are being honest, you know, and that's what I like about it. Okay. So that's cool.
1: Well, that's the, that's what even grunge is. If you want to get down to the root of it, grunge is basically an entire black backlash to a, a decade
2: of like excess. It's a backlash. Yeah. I mean,
0: poison rat and all these hair bands, they got, you know, all this virtuoso guitar playing Eddie Van Halen's awesome, but you know, knowing all those scales and be able to rip through it. People like the fact that, you know, it wasn't perfect kind of like Neil Young and Crazy Horse. Neil Young and Crazy Horse when you know he created Crazy Horse because he said, you know, like he got sick of being pitch perfect when he did uh, Harvest. And he went to Nashville and he was with all these musicians and it was really tight. And then he said, you know what? I want to go in the ditch. <laughs> so he did his famous Ditch trilogy it was like Tonight's the night, time fades away and you know, on the beach and it's like this raw sound of like, you know, Neil was like one of the, a punk rocker. In some ways, when he has Crazy Horse, he just doesn't care if it's totally pitch perfect or in the same key or just kind of the honesty of it.
1: Well, he's um, the godfather of Grunge in so many people's eyes, including mine. I mean, like, I, I mean, as much as people, I think people kind of have a weird take on Russ Never Sleeps, but I adore Russ Never Sleeps. It's a
0: Oh, yeah, problem. it's brilliant. It's brilliant. I mean, I like Time Fades Away and I like Tonight's Tonight because that Ditch trilogy where he started it. You know that's where you get that kind of early grunge sound or from those records, but then you know, he kind of refines it for Rust Never Sleeps." You know, and it's great. I mean, I I, I think it, I mean I like bands like Who's to Do and the Replacements and Joy Division, and I'm a keyboardist. <laughs> I was about to say if you enjoyed Di- it, so you're so you're a New Order fan too? Yeah, New Order. It's like with Joy Division and New Order, they they got me into like since you know when I first heard you know. Um, that the first joy division record and I like the kind of starkness of it, the kind of craft work nature of it. And I'm like, wow, that's really cool. And then they turned in a new order um, after what happened to the lead singer. And I'm like, yeah, it was just, that's the beginning, kind of the new wave, you know, in a new romantics. And I really, you know, as a keyboardist, I'm totally into that, you know, cause it's a lot of what I do, but it's just interesting. Um, to, to see where people come from but yeah joy division is one of my favorite bands of all time new order too but.
1: Peter, peter hook is actually as a bassist my biggest influence um that's that's who i actually draw most of like my influence from whenever i'm writing anything bass related i think oh, that's cool oh that's cool, baby. A good yeah. way of doing it though that's what i he, he, i didn't know what to do as a bass player when i first joined this band because i joined and i was used to i was used to a lot of punk and as you've heard with our music we're not necessarily, like, so punk as we are, like, a lot of other things. I'd say we're probably... Yeah, you're
0: more progressive. You're more progressive, so you're more wide open, yeah. Yeah, and,
1: That's like, cool. I didn't know how I fit into that at the time. I was... I, the only thing I could... Well, New
0: was- Order kind of gives it a roadmap, you know, between, like, New Order and Depeche Mode, and, yeah. and even going back to, you know, uh, you know the first Joy Division record just kind of shows you how to kind of that stark nature... Of that, you know, structure like disorder. I just love the way that goes. You know, it's almost it's punk, but it's not punk. It's something new. You know, uh, and so you're like, wow. It's like in the first New Order albums too. It's like they, the continuation of that kind of Joy Division sound and developing further. And then you get, you know, pretty much new romantic sound. You know, new wave sound comes from that development. Um, and it's always been impressive to me. And you know, you go back to craft work, you kind of see where it comes from, but. Um, and we lost, you know, the founder of Craftwork. Yeah, about to say week.
1: like, 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 shout out. i about to say we have to like, we have to say an RIP on this one tonight
0: because, yeah, that, yeah. That, yeah, that's crazy. Like, yeah. So, um, so, I can see we've been talking about your influences, but so when did you decide you had a talent and you decided that the bass was going to be your instrument instead of the guitar? Because so many, uh, you know, musicians, you know, they start with piano or guitar. But like, how did you get drawn to the bass?
1: It's interesting, I, it kind of, the bass kind of fell into me, so when I, was, when I was younger and like, I was like, okay, I like music, this is what I want to do, I was, uh, I mean, I was in middle school at the time, so I was like, okay, it's got to be like, I, it's got to be something, it's got to be guitar, because like, when you're like 10 years old, 11 years old, you're thinking like, it's got to be the guitar, so uh, I mean, I played the guitar for a little bit, and it was, I was like, I was getting better and everything, and then I was about to approach like high school. And I wanted to, I didn't want to play my trumpet anymore, if I'm being honest with you. I was like, I want to do my <laughs> music, but I don't
0: want to I play clarinet myself, so I, I jumped out of winds because like I can't write a song on a clarinet. There you go. <laughs> See, like,
1: br- like, okay, I, I'm preaching to the choir on this one. So I was like, okay, I, I can't think of a way to, like, do something I enjoy on trumpet. I want to do guitar. So I reached out to the band director. I was, like, 14 years old. I think I, like, emailed him from, like, an AOL account. And I asked him specifically, I said, can I play guitar in the band? And <laughs> my, and the band <laughs> director was like, we don't really have room for a guitar, but the person <laughs> who plays upright bass and electric bass for us is graduating this year. So we might be able to use you for that. And,
0: oh, that's cool. oh, I,
1: and so I stumbled into it in the weirdest way. And that's actually where I met. Um, our lead guitarist, Christian. I've known him for ten years of my life at this point, almost eleven. <laughs>
0: uh, wow! So you're, you're like junior high, high school bandmates.
1: Yeah, I met him my first day of band camp when I was in
2: this like this one time at band camp.
1: I met him, and the first time I met him, I had long blonde hair. And if you know what my lead guitarist looks like, he's got long, dark, curly hair. He's got like a somewhat tanned complexion. And he has a little bit of facial hair above his uh, above his upper lip. (laughs) Um, He can grow like pretty Mm -hmm. decent facial hair, but like there was like a little like it had the little like kind of pencil thin mustache going on. And someone (laughs) asked me, "Doesn't he look like Slash?" And he's wearing a Nirvana t shirt. (laughs) I'm wearing a Kurt Cobain t shirt, and I was like, "He doesn't look like Slash. He looks like Kirk Hammett from Metallica." And (laughs) and he looked at me, and he pointed. He's like, "And you look like Kurt Cobain." I was like yes exactly (laughs) and we had this weird moment where we just had like a high five that we held all the way down to like the football field it's it it was a bromance in the
2: making
0: (laughs) that's cool that you found somebody that you know when I was younger I had you know garage bands that were made up of my high school music uh classes you know I had a drummer that was in in the jazz band and my brother played guitar and then I had a lead singer that was like trying to be like <laughs> trying to be like the cure between the cure and, and the human league. He was trying to trying to do that. And I, <laughs> so I was always looking in the pawn shop for old uh, modes and, you know, somebody turned in their D50 or something and I would try to get it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting that a lot of musicians, like you know, that's where they start or they become rebellious or something and they jump on the guitar as part of like a rebellion thing. But, um, yeah, I was a keyboardist. I wanted to be a guitar player, but I just, I couldn't get it. My brother was able to pick it up right away. And I tried and I, and like, you know, but I had a talent for the keyboard and I said, okay, that's a good writing instrument. It's the same thing. You know, it actually became even better because I could write everything. <laughs> and I could write bass parts, I could write chords, I could write for the guitar player. Um, and so that, that became a real cool thing. And, you know, as a songwriter, I've been, you know, very keen on, on, on the songwriting capabilities of keyboards. Well,
1: they say that if you, can play one of, if you can play anything that's keyboard related, they say that you can pick up just about every other instrument because you have a fundamental understanding of where chords sit, like as far as the like, yeah. steps are concerned. And that's what I kind of yeah. like, wanted to learn when I was in high school, because I didn't really have that outlet. I didn't really have like a way of being like, OK, I got to learn tablature. I'd rather learn how. To, I'd rather learn music theory. I'd rather learn how to write. I'd rather learn how to be like a musician. Musician, and so I was mm-hmm. like, okay, I'll settle for bass on this. And the irony of it is that like my my best friend, I've known him for ten years at this point, and he he taught me a lot of what I knew. Um, it, it's it's interesting to cool. see like two people like grow together. One helps one grow. The other helps the other grow. And then there's something that's it's kind of like weirdly like nostalgic when you look back on it to see where people were were versus where they became and like where they went and it for us it i mean i i knew how to play my instrument i didn't know anything about music theory i didn't know how to write i didn't know why it should be one way as opposed to another and he gave me a lot of like really interesting fundamentals that i didn't know that i was going to get and he and it was brilliant i mean I, I got to say, it's a, it's a really surreal thing to be, like, in a band and, like, in, with someone, like, that taught you when you were, like, 14 years old. <laughs> so,
0: you're, so you're a lead guitar player, um, he, he's the primary writer?
1: I wouldn't say he's the primary writer. Um, if anything, I'd probably have to attribute that more to, uh, probably more to my lead singer. Um, so <laughs> this is going to be weird. So there's two Christians in the band. Um, one's named Christian Deanna. One is named Christian Cordero. My lead guitarist is named Christian Cordero. Um, The lead vocalist and, like, rhythm guitarist, his name is Christian Deanna. Songwriting's kind of a cumulative effort for us because we always kind of, like, bounce ideas off each other. When you've been playing together for about six years, things just kind of intuitively make sense and you know, like, what people are going for. So you kind of, like, over time you're like, well, maybe it should be more like this. And then, like... Like, the first couple times, it may not always go, like, the way you're you're hoping it will. Oh, yeah. But then after a while, like, people are like, oh, I'm on the same page as that. And then you kind of, like, you get you begin to realize that, like, you have, like, more of, like, a thing than you realize. And that's kind of how it evolved. I mean, I didn't have as active of a role when I was, when I first joined. And, like, I gotta say, like, I mean, a lot of our songs, like, they, they took flight because we are entirely different people. Like, in terms of, like, where we come from, where our influences are. I mean, my my lead singer, he comes from, his original background was pop punk. And then he moved to, like, kind of folky, like, singer songwritery type things. My guitarist Mm -hmm. comes from thrash, jazz, and, like, really weird niche music. I remember one time, uh, (laughs) I think it was, like, in my senior year of high school, he was playing, like, I think it's, like, something like uh daniel oh no pierre schaefer or uh, Was it pierre schaefer Was something like that um but basically he was this weird composer i think in like the early 20th century and he was experimenting a lot with like just weird sounds like he was sampling like trains rolling by and oh
0: field recordings yeah 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 Yeah, field recordings that a lot of people are doing like what it's called granular synthesis that actually takes like field recordings and uses them on granular synthesizers to make full polyphonic sounds. Um, I actually talked to an artist in the Netherlands that's a big granular synthesis that actually goes out and takes field recordings of breaking glass and rocks and birds and water and, and then puts it on a granular synthesizer and uses it. Um, that's kind of cool. I mean, it goes back to Yes in their first album, um, one of the, that band actually uh, closer to the edge. They they took a field recorder into a forest and taped the forest sounds since the beginning of the album. It's this this real a, a real ambient tape of natural sounds. I didn't know that's how they and got it. Then, that.
2: actually...
0: the, then they naturally then they actually have all these modes and stuff come in like a Hammond B3 and the modes come in. But the original, the started album is a field recording. <laughs> that's
1: actually a really cool, like, but, origin, origin story, though,
0: you know what I mean? That's, that's pretty cool. I... Well, yeah, it's like I said, I'm a music historian. I love looking at how people do them. I love the Velvet Underground, you know, Warhol and Lou Reed, and like, bands like Big Star, like Alex Chilton, Big Star, that's a rare band. It's like an unknown band. I kind of, you know, Who's to do? you know, is not the biggest punk band everybody ever knew, and most people don't even know who they are, but, but you know, I kind of go for Are stuff a like Bob that. You know, Paul in general, yeah. yeah, well, yeah, everything Bob Mode, You know, Grant Hart and Bob Mode. I had everything. I I was buying their albums as they came out. You know, I was young. I'm 50 years old, so when Who's gonna Who first came out, I was just totally SST. I was I was already buying Black Flag off of SST with with their label, and then suddenly they came out and they started putting out albums like every four or five months, and they would say if you could go to the record store when it had record stores, they they would just say, wow. This band to keep on putting stuff out, <laughs> and they, they were just really, you know, they were kind of like before Nirvana, they were like Nirvana, <laughs> they were doing this real natural punk, but it had this power punk. Like, you know, uh, if you ever, you, you know, if you know Bob Mode, you know what I'm talking about. They had this really awesome uh, counterpoint between Grant Hart and Bob Mode that created power punk, um, that had melodic punk. Which is like kind of weird, but it, that's what it was. Um, and I was very drawn to it, even on my keyboard. It's like, why am I drawn to that? But I, I was. <laughs> so are you
1: a replacements fan too?
0: Oh yeah, Paul Westerberg. I, he's, I think he's a great songwriter. I mean, I'm always drawn to singer-songwriters from Dylan to Conor Oberg. Anybody that's a great singer-songwriter, I don't care what genre. I tend to dive into it. You know, that's
1: like that's like the roots and of the my I, punk rock. Kind of like what like what I really dig into when it comes to like punk rock is that like. It's like that stinky pee where they have like kids don't follow, where like the intro is yeah, like it's like the Milwaukee police that they're coming to shut down a show and like everyone in the back is like
2: well, you,
0: <laughs> well, they were crazy punk, but they were melodic as hell. I mean, Paul Westerberg can write awesome personal songs. And when they first started like Let It Be and Tim, they're you know, they're they're not exactly toe no. punk. You know, it's like indie, it's college radio, it's all you know, it was, the, yeah, that was the epitome of college radio, <laughs> like Tim and Let It Be were like big college radio songs when I was actually on a college radio station at Bowdoin College back in the 90s. And there, I was playing Tim and, you know, it, well, it was actually the 80s, like 86 to 90. And I was playing Let It Be and Tim and, you know, Zen Arcade and Black Flag and all these bands Like I was really into. Well, <laughs> are they're one of those bands that
1: I appreciate because like they didn't stop their growth like they one of the things that i've always kind of grown disgruntled with about punk rock is how it has to fit what someone wants it to be all too often and how it, it kind of is a frustrating yeah. thing it's like why is there a litmus test for for punk rock it's, I mean, well
0: it's kind of like edm edm is like like if you don't follow that structure then nobody wants to hear it and then they don't advance yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know if you stay like the ramones you don't evolve like the class evolved oh the class I mean, evolved in such a
1: wonderful way yeah
0: yeah it's a sandinista it was like it's brilliant i mean it's all over the map it's got you know african rhythms it's got hip-hop it's got experimental stuff it's not just punk that's what's the great thing about the class yeah, the
1: magnificent know? seven like you have like that baseline is just straight up just such a funky little group
2: dude
0: Oh, yeah, Well, Mick Jones, I mean, he'd created Big Audio Diamond after because he was going into hip hop. He was going into other things, you know, and um, and that's why the band was going that way, because he was great at a composer and great guitar player. And he saw, you know, mixing drum machines with hard guitar was actually a good idea. and A lot of bands went that way, you know, <laughs> and, um, and he just figured out how to do it like earlier than a lot of other people. He was kind of on that new order. You know, Joy Division. He was in going that same direction, uh, which was really cool.
1: He was riding uh, the he's... new wave, if you will. <laughs>
0: yeah, he was like doing it like in the clash. You probably why well, he got kicked out. <laughs> yeah. Besides smoking too much marijuana. <laughs> well, I say, like, well,
1: with, with Joe Strummer and him, because they they at the end, from what I understand, they like hated each other. I mean, there's was...
0: well, he kicked them out. He let the manager kick kick the the best you know musician in the band out of the band yeah it's so
1: it's so weird because you think to yourself like what would have happened if like because here's the thing i love joe strummer but like w- what if he was like a different type of person and what if because like, i mean mix up like they're like the they're like the john and paul of
0: punk rock yeah 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 they definitely were yeah and what's funny is i saw a documentary and it was funny is like when, when he, the manager kept on egging him to kick mick out of the band right he finally did And then he realized he made a terrible mistake, right? So he went running to try to find Mick Jones, and he was, like, on holiday in some Caribbean island, and he didn't know where he was. He went and got to the island, rode a bike all over the island trying to find him (laughs) so he could bring the band back together, but he'd already recorded Big Audio Dynamite's first record, and so it was never going to happen. So he realized he made a mistake, and he wanted to bring the class back together, but it was, like, too late because Mick had already gone to Big, Big Audio Dynamite, and it was done. <laughs> Shouldn't listen to your manager when he says something
1: stupid. No, honestly, the second the second someone says something like that, you know that's a that's a red flag right there. That's like <laughs> wow that, that flag looks pretty crimson to me. Um
0: Yeah, yeah. But that's that's cool. Like I always de- devolve into music history, but um uh so so you guys like you when you record, does one guy bring like the demo, or do you guys just like do everything as a band? Like you said that you, you guys kind of pull together but does somebody come with a demo and then you guys change it because you have different personalities you have different opinions how things should work so does somebody bring like a song and then you kind of deconstruct it and put it back together pretty
1: much um i would actually attribute that to our lead singer um christian so he what he generally does is he comes up with like a concept he comes up with like lyrics sometimes they change from time to time one of the things that we that we go through as a band is that like if a, if a song is in its infancy we normally 9 out of 10 times do not record it until maybe like <laughs> at this rate like i want to say better part of like 2 or 3 years later um that and that's kind of how we make sure that it becomes what it becomes i a lot of times what we've seen is that people put things out before they're a complete idea and it's like do you want to eat like an uncooked piece of anything or would you rather eat something that's well cooked, well seasoned, and you know, it's only good for you. And what happens is the demo comes in and we're like, it's either going to be like a recording or it might start as like a subtle little jam at the beginning of practice. And we'll be like, what's that? And then, and then we'll be like, Oh, that's this. And then we're like, Oh, show me more of this. And then we kind of like, throw in our things here and there and like we we kind of like take the entire thing apart see what we like see what we don't like put it back together one of the things that we had to grow on like like musically as a band was structure because we one of the things that we've fallen into the trap of quite often is that we're kind of a live band in so many ways i mean <laughs> i think that nirvana's biggest gripe when they were like <laughs> when they were like just off of uh, Nevermind was how live yeah. sound was never captured and that's one of the things that we never wanted to let happen to us the issue is that with us we're not necessarily always trying to capture something live when we're doing something in the studio so mm-hmm. we've kind of made like longer songs that are just it seems like they're good to us because they seem like they're good when they're live and when they're live it feels great yeah. it feels like it's fleshed out it feels like people are getting into it you want you want some vamping there you want like
0: you don't need to oh yeah live live playing is totally different than actually constructing like an album <laughs> yes
1: exactly like preaching to the choir on this one and uh, so one of the things that we had to work on like as a group at, like i want to say for like the first bunch of years was just making sure that like we weren't overkilling it on the track but if we we're gonna like do something we're, we're gonna do it because we're feeling it out when we're on stage um, and that's kind of like yeah. where we like started to evolve as our own individual characters. We wound up basically saying, you know, this seems a little too long or here's where this is losing me. We like had to take a step back because, I mean, the second you're critical of your of like your own work, that's when you start to really begin to like figure out what works and what doesn't work. One of the things that like we had the, like the hardest time and like the, I want to say the first couple years as a band. We could not accept that we weren't right about our own music in some aspects.
0: And we and oh, we yeah. were right. We weren't. <laughs> well, it's hard when a band gets to a producer, right? Like you could be like you could have a band and you're a good unit and you're writing your own material, then you get to a producer, and a producer kind of rocks your world. Because you know, between a producer and a recording engineer, they say, No, you should use a different chord, you should use different voicing. Is you take this part and don't use that part and then take this part from the beginning of the song, put it to the end and end to the beginning. And then you're like, wow, that's not even the song anymore. But that's, you know, that's what you do when you're like recording an album. Like if you're a band learning to play together, you you it's a different skill set, you know, but the construction of, of, of songs, it, it's a personal thing too. I mean, I'm a, I'm a singer songwriter. I'm a, you know, primarily write everything myself and I have all this modular gear I've been writing for like 25 years and the stuff I know how to do just kind of over time um playing like 30 years as a player that you get you learn things um but when you when you first start you know, like everybody thinks their first stuff is great but you know over time things happen like you know, I'm into jazz and a lot of stuff is like you know we do a lot of improvisation you know you, if you're into bands like Sun Ra and Coltrane is like this is a different type of thing so if you're into stuff like that that's a it's a different skill say you might not hone it in as much as if you're trying to build a pop song. Um, so when you're trying to build a pop song or trying to build like a song that's radio ready or stream ready, it's a different technique. See,
1: that's kind of always the challenge, too, because, I mean, it's 2020 and I think it should be no surprise that like, while while we were definitely like an indie rock band in so many aspects, we combine a lot of different things. It's not always what's popular. And that's kind of like the uphill battle that a lot of like up and coming rock bands, alternative bands, metal bands, whatever it is, they're basically going against, like, they're cutting against a grain at this point because it's like the machine has decided for you what's popular at this moment and what's not popular at this moment. That's what makes people hate certain genres. I have a weird feeling.
0: It's like. Oh, yeah. Well, I think like EDM and hip hop and trance and stuff. The problem I have as an electronic musician. You know, you preach it to the choir. As an electronic musician, right? I'm a keyboardist, but people think I'm a DJ. Well, no, I'm not a DJ. And I'm, I'm not. The, I play a Moog. I play a Jupiter Eight. I was about you, say, you play probably
1: um, one I, of the most literally godlike synths of like. All yeah,
0: time. yeah, and it's not a CDJ. <laughs> not... <laughs> and I kind, I kind of get a little upset when somebody thinks that somebody can play a mini Moog. Is the same as somebody who plays a CDJ. I mean, not that the person who plays CDJ is not a musician, but playing a Moog is, is a different it's an skill entirely set. Entirely different and animal it's,
1: for every different
0: reason. It, yeah, yeah, and it's like it's like in, in the people in the in the way you record a Moog, you don't tend to use the dog. Yeah, we we yeah we because we, we we a Moog is all these control surfaces, and it's like you every one of those control surfaces is like a part of your instrument. And so when you play it, you can't really play it in Pro Tools or you can't really use the DAW to actually capture what you do with it. You have to put it down on a recorder and save that. Kind of like what Pete Townsend did with Barbara O'Reilly. Yeah! Right? But Barbara O'Reilly and Won't Get Fooled Again were on tapes. And every time they went to play it at a concert, they'd run the tape because that was like a point-in-time thing that you, it's hard to recreate. And analog synths are full of things like that. And so if you play an analog synth, you have to kind of be willing to understand that if you want to get it stable, you have to put it down on some kind of tape. And it's not like, you know, MIDI. It's, it's, it's the sound is coming from like an organic instrument and it changes. If you want it exactly as you record it, you have to capture it yeah, on it's tape. a
1: Moog, not an Akai. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. So you think it doesn't work that way. So it's a different type of thing. And every time you approach it, if you do the a solo, like a Keith Emerson solo or Bernie Worrell solo or bassline, those things are played in real time on those instruments. And that's how it is. Um, you know, like any guitar player, you know, be handling, you know, he does that solo different. Hendrix played his solos different. Eric Clapton played his solos different. It's the same like, idea. Yeah.
1: Well, because, wow. I mean, like, it, it's one of those things that becomes, like, a, it's a sacred thing to you. Your tone, after a while, your tone is generally what, like, matters to most people. And with a Moog, tone is everything. Because you don't buy a yeah, totally you don't buy a moke for any other reason other than you love what you can totally get out of the thing.
0: Yeah, and you can't. Like, if somebody said, well, I can get that out of an iPad. It's like, no, Never, you can't. Never. In a billion years, <laughs> get that out of an iPad. Guaranteed. You can't get it out of a soft sense. You can't because it's like it's all controlled voltage. It's all real analog oscillators take 20 minutes to warm up. It acts different on warm up compared to if it's on for an hour. And, you know, I, I have like three MOGs and they all act different from day to day. And, they, and I always I always tell people, like, my MOGs are active members of my bank.
2: I completely concur <laughs> with that statement, though. That makes most uh, no sense. <laughs>
0: Yeah, because it's like, well, you know, what do you mean? It's like, but they are members of the band because they actually contribute. They kind of drive where I go, because they kind of will go where they want to go, and you go yeah, with
1: like guitarists and stuff. Like, <laughs> it's 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 interesting you bring up the Eddie Van Halen and the Jimi Hendrix thing because for them they can like if they if they can change the solo if they really want to, like it like people generally don't necessarily hold on to like every single thing because at times they're kind of hoping live it's a little bit different quite often.
0: Yeah, yeah, you really want that, except there's a generation that we have with some of this new music that they want it to be exactly the way they heard it on the record, which is, to me, has been, like, mind-numbing. It kind of reminded me of the story with the Eagles on the Hotel California concert tour. Uh, Glenn Frey uh, and... the drummer I always I forgot his name, everybody knows his name but they they were like running the band they were the leaders of the band right and they basically were like James Brown they find Joe Walsh they would find uh Felder if they deviated from note to note exactly the way that out uh you know Hotel California it had to be played exactly the same every night That's- and I'm like, that's a way to really break up the band. Into I gotta
1: say, like, well, Joe Walsh and like Glenn Fry were like not talking for what, decades after that? Like,
0: oh, yeah, because I mean, they, they, they ended up hating each other because they sat there and they said, well, the fans want this to be the same every night. So don't even deviate. Do the songs exactly the way they were. I mean, like, and that takes all the fun. I mean, Led Zeppelin, all the great bands, they kind of would deviate. You know, they give you a stay where they haven't, but Paige would play it a little different on the solo. He wouldn't do exactly the same. You kind of it. Oh, yeah, well, that's
1: something that you can, you get, you can get live that you're not going to get on a recording. Because, like, I mean, you can listen to Led Zeppelin recordings and you're not going to hear Moby Dick go on for 30 minutes. But if you go to a Led Zeppelin mm-hmm. concert, you're going and you're seeing yeah. everything that Led Zeppelin has to offer. And it's is not on the album. The one thing that, like... Is like, for like an as an artist for me is a little confounding. Is like like you said, how everyone wants it to sound exactly like the recording. Because if you want it to sound exactly like the recording in your mind, then why are you at a show?
0: I mean, yeah, you just listen to it, see. Go put it on your on your on your phone, your cell phone, and you just listen. Yeah, to like, it that I mean,
1: way. If, if you want to see, if you're just coming to see me, that's great. But at the same time, you're here and I'm on stage. And one of the things that as a band we wanna do is we wanna give you something that you're not gonna get when you turn on that recording. We wanna give you like something that we we're working on. We wanna give you something that oh, yeah. we that we have a live version for because you're here. There's you're either at a bar or you're at some kind of a festival or you're at this and that. And you wanna see something special because you're a part of a moment. People wanna feel like they're like they're not being like taken for a Yeah.
0: Yeah, but a lot of like, well, I don't know, corporate bands, right? They're kind of locked into musical directors running off of Ableton, running off a of main stage, tying it to the light show, and so they get locked in to the light show. They get locked into the to the things firing off the fire. You know, they get locked into it because oh, we got to run off the computer, so we got to run the song. Exactly as close to a record because we got all this stuff coming off of it. And you know, i like, I can understand, okay, you're doing a show, it's like theater. But when it becomes more like theater than music, then it's like, what are you doing? You're what? Well, you're an entertainer. Yeah. <laughs> like,
1: I'm, here you know? to, I'm here to you know? basically <laughs> do something that is like, don't get me wrong, there's like things that we do that become like sort of recurring staples after a while. Like, I mean, for one, there's a song that we recorded a long time ago called Food for Thought. Um, and the ending of the song just happens to be that I tend to drop my bass and it becomes a big noise rock thing. Um, and there's a noise rock part on the actual recording, but you don't get to basically see me like ju- jump off the stage, run around the entire building and come in through a different entrance and get back on stage. Because, yeah, yeah. And that's, But to me, that's like, it may be like, slightly becoming repetitive at that point. But the thing that I, that it, that's not wrong about is the yeah. feel. Cause I mean, one thing that I've...
0: Well, it's like, yeah, everybody's got stagecraft. Everybody has their stick on stage. Everybody does what they, like Pete used to do the yeah. windmill, you know, <laughs> you know, and Paige used to have that look, you know, they had this kind of look and clapped and they have these signature things. And Hendrix used to do what he did, but you know, all the great, great musicians, all, you know, Dwayne Allman had, had a whole stick. But, but, you know, it's, it's, there's muscle memory in the, being a band of practices, you know, a live band. that, that you know, So this stuff that's like, okay, yeah, you're going to have that song because you played it a, a thousand times. Or you played it 200 times, so you know it. But even if you know it, you, you still kind of go off if the drummer decides to do something different or a bass player goes off or the singer decides to change the lyrics because he's feeds yeah. off the crowd, right? So you feed yeah. off the crowd and you change the lyric. You know, Dylan is famous for changing like Idiot Wind. And change the whole lines in some of his great songs, he would. I mean, if you go, you're you're a big fan of Dylan, you buy his live stuff. He would the versions of "Idiot" when he has a totally different set of lyrics, depending on what he felt like that day, and he would run a different set that he had. They go, yeah, that's kind of like the unreleased version. He would decide to use it, and that's kind of cool. I mean, Eddie Vedder does that too. I mean, Pearl Jam's kind of like Grateful Dead; they kind of run around. People buy. Yeah, you know, their live shows because they change it up all Yeah, the time? like
1: I mean, that's one of the things um, that I've like always felt about. Like, I mean, you can always like anyone can buy a CD and like they're like, okay, this is like this is enjoyable, but the thing is, you don't always understand the CD until you see something live. And one of the classic cases of this, I'm not sure if you're familiar with. Uh, are you are you a Bruce Springsteen fan by any chance?
0: Oh yeah, I've got Nebraska. You know, I've got like. Uh, you know the 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 great you know all all the great stuff he's done. I mean, I like some of his double records. You know, uh, the river. You know, I don't know if people get into that, but I like the river a lot. And um, yeah, I mean, I like the you know the wild and the, the, you know the first ones. You know, the the first ones before he actually broke it. Well, broke interestingly through.
1: enough, there's a version <laughs> of Born <laughs> in the USA that's entirely nothing like the version of born in the usa that like you're used to hearing you're used to hearing with the kick drum and like yeah and like big, oh yeah oh yeah yeah there's a version which is more stripped down and it's i think it i think he made it around like maybe ghost of tom jode era um
0: oh yeah i think i got a collection it's to have really that.
1: interesting because i mean it's something that it, it you you kind of enjoy it more from the stripped down perspective because it feels more like what it's supposed to be.
2: Oh
0: yeah, yeah totally. He's good. a lot like Dylan because like you know I go back and I listen to like Tangled Up in Blue and the the famous you know from from the whole period of time of his oh, yeah. divorce, right? And, and the there's like the the kind of highly produced versions of Tangled Up in Blue. And idiot wind and then there's the actual demos of him just playing the guitar right and it's just him and his acoustic guitar running through idiot wind running through tangled up in blue and he actually had a jacket with like buttons on it right and the buttons were hitting the guitar and so on the demo you can hear the buttons hitting the guitar on this like his jacket is like it's actually hitting against it and making all this noise And so they didn't use it but it's actually the demo is so good it's actually better than, than what's on the album. I
1: can't tell how many times <laughs> I experienced that, and that's such a weird thing. Because like, I mean, as artists, it becomes like, it almost becomes like ritualistic, or maybe at times like an ep- like kind of an exercise in vanity. But like, we're always like, we got to go in the studio, and we got to do this, and we got to look like we're really. And then sometimes it's just the simplest, stripped down things, the simplest like demos that just catch everything at the right light at the right moment, and they're fundamentally just a thousand times better. Um our lead singer has like solo stuff and I remember he he did a recording of one song and I remember I heard the demo version and I said, I mean I understand that you wanted to hear this like on recording, but there was something about the demo version that it really captivated me. There was something that was very like it felt more I don't know if the word is authentic
0: yeah, it's like honesty. You know, I find that over the years that I've, I that's why I love the Velvets, like the Velvet Underground, and Lou Reed. They used to have a habit of um, maybe going with the second or third take, and then it would sound kind of raw. But that's why, you know, the first Velvet Underground record sounds so good because it didn't. You know, you it, you listen to the first Velvet Underground record, and then you listen to Loaded. Which is their one that was highly produced. Now, loaded is good, but the first album with the Andy Warhol banana on it—that's not highly produced—is like you know, it's like punk. It's like it's really—it's like wrong. a bunch of demos. It's and very seedy. Yeah, and that that always appeal. Yeah, that always appealed to me because I will go back, and I'll be with my bands and stuff, and we do like ten takes, and I'm like, you know what, the second, third take is actually better. Because by the time you get to the tenth take you start being dishonest not to be like a lot of times you you as a musician the first or second take you're kind of being raw you're revealing maybe more than what you want to reveal and then you start stripping it out you say "Oh, i didn't want to say that or i didn't want to do that or oh i could do that better and then you come back and you find out if you're honestly you look back it's like well maybe the third version is actually better than the 10th or 20th because
1: you try so many times and then like after you know, a while it's like it be it just becomes like you have more options but Maybe at the same time, you didn't need, like, seven or eight more. Maybe you just needed to cut it off there. And for for us, when we were first starting, that was kind of a challenge because we're our biggest critics. We're always like, we can do this better. We could do that better. And the second, like, you realize studio time is money, you're like, okay, we have to, we mm-hmm. have, to have an idea, and we have to complete the idea. And for us, it became – we had to become systematic about it. We had to be like, we can't get too caught up in, like, how we're like feeling so invalid because the other side of it is that one of the reasons why things like the velvet underground's first album and the rolling stones like have an entire career filled with blunders on tape we recorded with um ted young and he and he works with um works with a bunch of people one of the people that he did like a lot of work for though were the rolling stones he actually had like some like work kind of like remastering some of their historical stuff i think it was like charlie is my darling uh, he's worked with Kurt Vile and like mm-hmm. Warren Jones and like a bunch of people. Oh, we were, we, oh, yeah, we, well. looked, we looked him up and we were like, he's the guy. He's got to be the guy. And we were in the studio with him one, and one day and he was telling us about how you wouldn't, if I played you spots in the Rolling Stones songs where they entirely screwed up and no one did anything about it, you would never hear the song the same way again. But if I never told you where it was, you would never notice, and you would think it was number one, just a good part of the song, and it doesn't matter.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why I try to tell people one of the things I, I, I don't like about digital audio workstations, and I, I'm a Dallas recorder, I record the direct recording because I use a lot of analog sense, is because of that back in the day, when you had a lot of these bands, they used to have you know happy yeah. accidents and the Stones and the Who. And Clapton and Cream. And if you go back and you you watch documentaries and they start uncovering on the mixing board what's really there, you'll hear, like, you know, bad key changes, bad timing on the drums. But if you listen to it all together, it actually brings the character of the song. And... There's something when you if you let the BPM, you let a dog tell you, oh, you can't do that key with this key or you can't do that beat or your timing's off. Well, in the classic songs that we all know, the timing is a little oh, off. Oh, everything you know, have heard of
1: them. from like every um, classic that, rock band <laughs> like just about had some level of a tempo problem that people don't talk about. Like.
0: Yeah, and the, the auto correction on the drum machines and in the. In the and the and the Dawes is making things too perfect. It may, and I had some guy who says like, yeah, it's too clean. It sounds great, but it's too clean. I I rather hear Keith Richards making sloppy mistakes. And that's part of the joy of it. Than that's somebody doing a than doing perfect because those those errors are kind of like you know it's the nature of the blues or nature of like rock is that kind of imperfect. Yeah, it's like beauty the
1: perfection of imperfection. The same kind of beauty it's and, and, and
0: pain. Yeah, I mean it's the whole point a lot of times in rock and punk and people go back to punk. Why Nirvana got through is because that kind of sloppiness or perceived sloppiness is not exactly always sloppy. It's kind of maybe on, you know, the very good musicians is, you know, it's maybe you don't do it a hundred times. You know, maybe you don't fix it. Maybe you leave it because it's it's like a painting. It's like, well, you know what? I'm just going to leave that stroke because it works, you know, and, I always tell people, don't let the computer tell you how to be a musician.
1: Also, like, I get that like, we have to strive for like being more perfect as musicians. But at the same time, as humans, we're naturally imperfect. And naturally as imperfect humans, we screw up from time to time. And sometimes those mistakes, they build character. And there's nothing that separates them that like entire philosophy from when you're setting foot in a studio and i think that people all get too lost in the sauce and that's like it's got to be down to an atom and i'm like but you're not neil pert <laughs> like, but like <laughs> like you're like yeah. i understand like I, I get it it's it's your baby it's like it's like your child and believe me we're we're our biggest critics of it too we're like we don't we want the best for our music but sometimes it's a matter of letting people know that like you're flesh and blood too, but there's something that's honest and raw here. There's...
0: Well, sometimes the, that mistake can drive you to write the yeah. song a different way. You know, like yeah. like if you if you have a timing change, you know, if you go to the progressive music, like progressive rock bands, like Genesis, and yes, you know, all there are tons of timing changes, songs within songs, you know, changing, you know, key. And, and people you can't do that it's like well you know that's the nature of, of it you know i watched a documentary with peter gabriel and he's talking about all these shadow vocals they used to do these shadow vocals to build them up and if you listen to them separate they would sound like they don't go together at all um and then he had like experiments like where okay we're going to have the drummer do this part and we're going to tape like a hundred different versions of the drums and then we t- they went and took tape and spliced it and then mixed it all together which is a typical kind of progressive rock band type of thing but it's like okay we're, we're just going to deconstruct if you go back to wilco and you go back to listen to like um that's interesting enough, one time, of our biggest influences as a band <laughs> yeah they just totally deconstructed you know jay bennett would take the original Jeff Tweedy, just uh, you know, normal guitar demos, and then reconstruct them like you know, like a George Martin. And that it was very imperfect, and it's all over the place. And that's why the Yankee Hotel Foxtrot sounds the way it does because it's totally deconstructed, like using the studio as that, an
2: instrument
0: it was very hard to play well, live though. <laughs> hard to play that. Well, album I, they
1: live. still like there's certain things that they'll that they'll never play off of that ever again. I don't think. like but you know what's interesting is that it's the most heartfelt, really honest like album cuz and i mean, have you ever seen the documentary um oh,
0: yeah, oh yeah, my break God. my heart. Cuz like yeah. you begin
1: to like everything begins to, to unravel for you and like everything makes sense and everything falls into place. Like you see Jeffy's like He's going through weird, like, divorce problems, like, or not even divorce problems, just, like, marital, like, I'm,
0: like, lonely. Yeah, he's, like, through drug addiction. He's having marital issues. And then Jay drug addiction. <laughs> He's having fights with, with, with Jay, because Jay keeps on deconstructing the songs. And, you know, and then, they, you know, they end up bringing it to the label, and the label didn't like it. <laughs> because it wasn't, you know, marketable because it was art. It was kind of, it was more like a Velvet Underground record. <laughs> it's, it's more like a sunra record than a rock record. Um, and, and that's, that was cool, but that's hard to get people to accept. I mean, it's like tonight's tonight, the record company like looked at that and they were like, what's this? You're out of key. You're, you're sound like you're crying. You know, Neil was like, what, you know, that's what it is. <laughs> he, he was able to get it out. he was Neil, but. Well, we'll what I like about like
1: w- watching that movie <laughs> was like watching them like go from like being on Warner to like all of a sudden after all of that like going to none because because if you do a little bit of research on none such, I believe at the time Warner owned none yeah. such. so it was like almost like they were like yeah you did this kind of on our dime so we're not going to lose much from this because you're still gonna we're still gonna be taking something on the back end but that album is art that album yeah. is that.
2: That's one of the
0: things that possibly Yeah. That's the kind of album I always go and say you can't do yeah. that in a dog. You know, you can't. You can't, you know, it's kind of like tonight's the night. You can't do that on a dog. You can't do the first Velvet Underground record. You can't do Big Star Third. Um, there's certain like iconic albums that are, you know, done and you can say, Well, that's kind of weird, you know. You know, Neil's voice is like uh, is like you say, it's like very fragile. He's kind of like falling apart on tonight's the night. And, and Wilco is kind of like the same thing. The whole band's kind of, kind of what Jay was doing, was doing that kind of deconstruction to the point where it's, you know, not musical in certain places, like yeah, on like, purpose. Uh,
1: what do you call you know, uh, it? Radio Cure.
0: Dis- Radio <laughs> Cure
1: is like, even like a really good example of that in the sense that like, it almost just begins so, like what he's finger picking to a point is like, at some points, like just very faintly audible. But then when he sings, it all makes sense. Like, it all, like, it fits and it oh, yeah. becomes more like a puzzle piece. That's like, it becomes less like, it becomes less like rock and roll and it becomes more like a composition. And I think there's, like,
0: its own... Yeah, it's like the sound painting. Hen- Hendrix used to call when they asked him what, he, what electric lady was, this reporter asked him, like, cause he they hear all these birds and cosmic sounds and ocean waves? And this, he wasn't even using a synth, you know, and they, they asked him, what is this? And he said, "Well, this is the sound painting," and I always took that. I was like, "Wow, that's a brilliant thing that Hendrix was kind of talking about." What, yes, and Jazz hadn't even done yet. Um, but you know, he looked at it as they well, This is like I see music as like colors, and like I'm doing a sound painting, <laughs> and and that's that's what Jay was doing. And anybody that starts to do that on these great albums, like they they start to go more and become more like painters, like sonic painters.
1: Like about that, though, like, like for example, one of my favorite like. Acts of all time is just is Pink Floyd because there's something about the fact that everything that Pink Floyd did on oh, tape yeah. had purpose. Like David Gilmore, I think, is probably like my favorite guitarist just for the sheer fact that he doesn't do anything just to do it. He does it only if it has absolute meaning. Like
0: Oh yeah, he's great. I was watching I oh, wish you were here documentary. Well,
1: like <laughs> collapse a
0: And uh it was it was there's unbelievable a, There's
1: a point in like um, shine on you crazy diamond where like it's like it's like you like you it's like slowly building it's like boom boom and then like after a while the guitar kicks in and it's accompanied by the lap steel and oh, yeah. he's playing a lap steel solo as Rick Wright is harmonizing a synth solo and it literally sounds like an entire descent into madness and every single time i hear that track it doesn't matter if it's the first time I heard it or if you played it for me right now. It sends chills down my spine because it's just—I have the utmost understanding of everything that was intended, like on that one track. And
0: it was cool. They, I was watching also where they Gilmore for one of the solo, one of the guitar parts. He went into a room that was like all by himself with a bunch of amps, and they mic'd all these Marshall's or Orange amps. And recorded it in, in this big open air room to make it sound like it's far away. And it, when you hear it, it is because he was, and you know, that's when people have big budgets and they can do whatever they wanted. And, but, but it, that's the kind of care that used to go into recording when, you know, bands would go, you know, Oh, I'm going to get this room. And for this specific song, that I want the solo to have this feel. I'm going to go to this room because it has this wide open feel. And, that is just the brilliance of that kind of stuff, and then just the, you know, the keyboards on that album and the piano playing is just unbelievable. And they would leave the space like a jazz band, like a Sun Ra, or a Davis, you know, and and not even sing for like ten minutes, you know, and 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 that's that's very progressive. You know, it's kind of what like the like bands I love, like you know, Yes and Tangerine Dream, and you know, all these bands like that. They would be willing to like service the song not make a hit you know like i'm gonna do a 10 minute song or a 12 minute song because that's what that's it is. its
1: own form of beauty you know? <laughs> to me in like in its own way though and like because i mean like these days it kind of feels like one one side of like humanity saying you got to create a pop song because i have like a five second attention span and like
0: yeah. It took songs are like two minutes and 15 seconds, you know, one minute and 52 seconds and three minutes, you know, one, three minutes is too long. You know, most of this, it's like so many songs today are so short and there's so, there's, there's like 10 producers They're taking the same fruity loops, the same splices, the same samples, the same, you know, drums off the 808 or 909 doing the same thing over and over. And it's, 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 you know, it's destroying music, in my opinion, because it's becoming so robotic, so cookie cutter, you know, oh, bring the rapper in to, to do a, a feature and have him say something in name. I don't even understand, kind of though. It, it becomes, and you know,
1: yeah, like, don't what, don't what is that? I, have a, I actually have a special <laughs> place in my heart for pop music because, like, I think that there's a lot of good pop
2: well, that's the thing. It's like like pop
1: can be great. Like hip hop. Literally, the Beatles, the Beatles were pop. Were like, pop. At one point, like, a lot, like rock was at one point the pop of like that time. And there's still good pop that comes around now and like then. Like in even like in things where they do use like electronic stuff. But then you find out like how many of like these things. It, it just feels like it's more forced and it's less special and it becomes like it feels like i've heard this one five times before and then you find out who was the one who wrote the song in the first place and it's like oh i have heard this one five times before because they use the close but no cigar formula and for us we don't like that because i mean like on one hand we're like yeah i mean we're trying to write something that people will will enjoy and will appreciate
0: well, that that's why I talk to indie bands. You know, I I could interview big bands, and make a whole different different level, but I like to talk to indie artists. You know, cause I grew up on college radio, I grew up watching you know MTV 120 minutes, um, and you know reading Rolling Stone magazine and you know reading the, the Village Voice and reading all these like you know, you know going to CBGBs and stuff. So that, I'm kind of like I've always my heart is in 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 the indie band. You know, I was with into R, into REM when they were on IRS before they made so it So you're big.
1: like, so you're like the like, OG you know, years. And
0: I was into that. Yeah, I mean, I, that to me is like the, when you didn't know what Stipe was saying, like on on the reckoning. You know, you didn't really know what he was saying, but it was it was beautiful. And we're like, I don't really care to know exactly what he's saying. It just this it just sounded good. And we were like, how can you like a band where you don't understand the lead singer? I'm like. Because it's like, it's the, it's this, it's the sound. Is the most powerful right-hand in you know, all history. And the sound was this. Yeah, I mean, it was just the sound of it. I mean, it, and I kind of got a little let down when I could actually hear his lyrics. I always kind of like, well, I actually like the Reckoning. and I like, you know, Life's of Rich Pageant. I liked it better when it was more, his vocals were more masked, you know. And I understand he, he got better. And it's, some of the stuff is good, but it's like I think the IRS years are the best years of IRM. I mean, but that's me, can I like that punk aesthetic? I like that kind of early period. And it just seemed like as they got bigger, then, then it just... Well, at one point you know, they were playing with Black the Flag. Same, they were like you know. sharing bills but, with Black
1: Flag. It's a weirdly like...
0: Well, yeah. I mean, they, they were an indie band. I mean, they, it was a miracle that they broke through at the level big thing. I mean, most bands at that time never got as big as they got, you know. Um, that was like a big thing. Was like, oh yeah, and then who's to do tried it and they, they it broke apart. Um, <laughs> they they got into Warners. They were gonna get big, and then Grant got into heroin, and then there was the suicide, their manager, and all, all this stuff happened. But you know, now everybody makes it. But REM were able to kind of crash through that, and you know, they did very well. I, mean, I liked the Accelerate. I actually thought that was more like what they used to do. Um, more like Life's like a Pageant. They, that, I, I actually liked that album a lot. But um, yeah, it's just interesting uh, that like the pure pureness of music always drives me to talk to bands like yourselves, you know, like like your Foxfires. I'm I was really glad I got to talk yeah, to you today. Long
2: overdue. Okay,
0: you were know, just chatting <laughs> about music. Well, usually we're scheduled for March, right? <laughs> yeah, like was, I just uh, like... Yeah, yeah, things got screwed up. I mean, I, I'm I'm at home recording. I just been working on. I'm actually working on an album with an Italian producer and um it's like I'm here in New Hampshire and he sent me a bunch of files and I'm actually doing all kinds of bass lines on my Moog I was doing that before I talked to you in my home studio and go back to that when I'm done. But uh, yeah it's like I've just found you know That's new awesome. things to do. <laughs> but yeah, I mean you have to find you know your niche luckily because I can play you know what I my Moogs and stuff I I get calls to work on stuff. So then I, I work on other people's projects beside my own. But, um, yeah, it's just interesting what, you know, this time with with the COVID, you know, you're out there on the front lines. And that's really, we always appreciate people doing that. Um, You know, I've been kind of locked down just in my bedroom. This is
1: the weirdest (laughs) time.
0: Just doing my work.
1: Talking about live bands, I mean, like, through this whole thing. I mean, the weirdest thing for us is that, like, by so many stretches, like, I mean, like, we have a presence on social media. But by every margin imaginable we're a band that we that we kind of pride ourselves on the fact that when we play live we're, we're our you tightest play live.
0: You know? yeah that's yeah, hard yeah that's really hard this is like a big kick to everybody i mean a lot of like soundcloud has a thing out there now if you're on a certain level you can donate to your band you know and, and spotify has set up donation buttons but everybody's hurting so i don't think a lot of people are donating either thing,
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> but they at least they decided to set up a donation button so you can attach it to like a cash app or your PayPal or yeah, whatever to sign up for it if like, you I have I that ability. A few
1: weeks ago, but like at the same time, you're absolutely right. It's a kind of a weird time because, I mean, don't get me wrong, like every dollar helps, but at the same time, like how many people have dollars to spend at this at this point?
0: Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it would have been nice if they had set that up when people had money. <laughs> like, hey,
1: you can donate to me um, before you like have no money to your name. <laughs>
0: Yeah, before it's like everybody's like, oh, they just lost their job, so they don't have money either. So maybe you could get us a little higher royalty and kind of knock down how much you give to the top tier. You know, that's the whole thing. And like, and one of the questions we always ask is great that we have these streaming services and SoundCloud and everything that gets us out there. But there's like, a, there's like the top tier of the music business, they get the higher percentage oh, of the yeah. streaming income. And then in all the other bands, we get like point oh six of it. true. Um, and it, it, yeah. And so that whole thing is like, well, it's a kind of double-edged sword. It gets us out there, like the radio, like college radio. Like now I got people in Israel listening to me. I got people in, you know, Nicaragua and everywhere in the world, you know, able to listen to me. They couldn't do that before, but then I, you know, what, what, you know, 10,000 streams, I get 30 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> Versus if somebody had downloaded 10,000, then I would have had 10,000 bucks or 8,000 bucks. Um, so, you know, the, the, this, the, the way we make money is through merch and shows. Um, and if we can't do the shows, you know, people don't buy the merch because they don't see us. And so we're all, you know, all the musicians around the world. I've been talking to bands in Germany and, you know, Ireland, Denmark, you know, South Africa. And it's like worldwide, every band I've talked to, they're like, they, they can't make the money. Um, so if you guys, like, thought of other things you can do besides your day gigs to, like, keep your, so your we, band we going. Like,
1: I- I'm, I'm going to be, like, pretty honest here at the moment. Like, so because I've been working throughout this whole thing, um, where we practice right now is actually the same place I live. Um, I happen to, like, have, like, a place where we have adequate space and, like, soundproofing enough to, to practice in the neighborhood. And, like, people don't typically, like, bother. They don't get too angry. You don't practice too late. But we have a place where we can generally kind of do things. What's So we're kind of able to kind of maintain, like, being above water in some aspects. But we're also, like, it's like we're stuck in, like, in the mud. And we can't really get out until we have a tow truck kind of pull us out. I mean, we used to make all of our money off of live things. I mean, and... To try and get us out of, like, the hole at the moment, one of the things that we're really trying to do is, like, we're just trying to figure out, like, what's going to happen once this thing lifts. Once this thing is over, that's going to be, like, it's either going to be we're going to burst out of a gate or we're going to be at a slow crawl. And our goal through this whole thing, what we really want to do is our fan base that we have, like, consistent... We want that to be built up via social media and all these things because, like you said, it's it, it's a weird world where like we can be accessed at like the blink of an eye, but you get like maybe like two cents.
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: it's it, it harder for a band like you, like to like out a bunch of cents, and I can go and somebody says put a mode baseline down and they send me a, rec- a wav file, and I put it into my into my hardware recorder, and then I overdub a baseline onto it and send it back to Google Drive. Um, and I then I make you know some money. Um, and I can work on you know TV commercials and like advertisements and stuff because I can do stuff on my sense that you know rock one band of the can't we're do. Also trying to pursue um, things in
1: that means we're trying to actually branch out a little bit more into sync licensing because I mean that aside from live music and merch, one of the things that we've always noticed has been a consistent thing where you can make money has been sync licensing. I mean.
0: Yeah, that's what kind of what I'm doing. is like I'm doing like advertising and getting like brought into projects. You know, I'm in this thing called a music gateway out of London, and they, they you get to do collaborations. And so a band with Yeah, a band will say, Well, I just got like seven tracks from this Italian producer. And he's like, Well, I want, they listen to what I do. They give an example of your EPK, they see your sound, and they say, Well, I want you to put some Moog basslines lines on this or why you put some Jupiter on this and you, you know, so then you go and you do this, you know, you put your, 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 your flavor onto it. <laughs> yeah. and, um, it's like, you know, it's, it's pretty cool that you can, and I've been doing that before the crisis because I kind of like a bedroom artist. Um, but, you know, I've kind of been set up to be able to do that. I was doing live streams on Facebook live for the last three years before anybody was like doing that. that that's what I do. Um Uh, I mean, I go to New York and play sometimes, but a lot of times I'll go to Boston, but a lot of times I just, you know, I'm a producer keyboardist that, you know, just continually writes all the time. Um, And I've been able to do that. Yeah, the sync licensing is I always encourage any artist that that needs to get out there. They need to, like, look at all the sync licensing and find ways to, to, like, get on to advertising projects and movies and TV because they still need music for everything that they sell and they're still selling stuff. So, you might be able to still do okay if you can I'm get into really,
2: it.
1: I'm pushing for just about every day. I mean, at the moment, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get in touch with a few different supervisors. We're kind of working with um, we have like a there's a I get I don't know it's like a website basically called Song Trader, and you can kind of submit some of your music.
0: Oh yeah, that's that's one of them. Yeah, music the one I do music gateways one out of London, but Song Trader I've been on that one too. That's
1: it's a really it's a really good...
0: Yeah, but there's a lot of. Yeah, there's a lot of opportunity. You'd be surprised. People are like, "What is?" Yeah, there's no gigs, but these are different type of gigs, <laughs> you know. And they, they, sometimes they're looking for rock, you know. Sometimes they're looking for punk. Sometimes they're looking for you know EDM or trance. They're looking for everything. And it's not just the American market; it's like the worldwide market. You know, I saw something where a South Korean place with a you know, musician was looking for somebody to do, you know, mo and then somebody from like Argentina was looking for something and somebody from Brazil was looking for something. And so there's there's a lot of opportunities to get into the right spot. Yeah,
2: for, for
1: us, one of the things that we've like also been trying to do aside from sync is like we were as, as much as it sounds weird because like, we're not sure how it's going to happen at this point. We're trying to get back into the studio. And this is kind of one of those occasions where we could have had home equipment uh, to record things and we're kicking ourselves, because we were originally planning on getting back into the studio, I want to say just about, actually right about now, and we...
0: The time. Yeah, time it happened. Like,
1: <laughs> we had three drum tracks ready to go, and we had basically a full album that we were preparing. Just like We were going to do our first full length in a while, because we signed to a, a label out of Norfolk, Virginia, um, called Brink, and we were looking forward to doing another full length. We'd actually been sitting on a large body of material for, I want to say, the better part of like I don't know, maybe like the past two years or or so. And we've been collecting it. We've been tailoring it. We've Mm -hmm. been road testing it. And we're like we finally think we have the right people to release this kind of thing with. We feel like we have the right kind of we have the right team. We have the right version of ourselves to be doing to
0: do it. Yeah, right when Literally. you wanted to go, and, then you couldn't get it.
1: <laughs> and it's and it's interesting because it's what we feel at the moment is by far our best work, and we we're sitting on it just in terms of like when can we go back in because we have three drum tracks ready. We can lay down three songs like
2: pretty much.
0: Yeah, it's too bad he didn't have like a like a you know a Zoom L twenty or L twenty four or a Task Cam twenty four or even like a like a, a, a like a. A clone of a of a nor of a of a of a of a really good board, but yeah, I mean, I've been doing that's why for a long time I decided a long time ago because I'm an IT guy. I went and invested in a bunch of stuff so I can just like record anytime I want, and and pretty much I mean I work with sound engineers and stuff that sometimes pretty my stuff up, but a lot of what I do I can do out of my home studio, and then it just gets like reengineered, and I don't have to really you know, go into a studio because I can just do it. Um but you know my keyboards so I don't have to have a drums and everything mic did so I can kind of do everything myself. But um yeah, I think a lot of artists I've been talking to in the last three um, last month have been saying, boy well, you know, I need to learn Ableton, I need to learn mainstage, I need to get a USB audio interface. I need to get some mics and I'm gonna start if this thing goes on like longer than what I expected, I'm gonna have to start thinking about record in my yes, own like contemplating
1: the cost of an interface and condenser mics because the thing is where we're, where we're currently at i mean if we needed to to like get the sound we needed out of the, like where i currently have all the stuff we could definitely do it i mean we could and the thing is we actually have someone who might be able to take the tracks and turn them into something mixed and mastered
0: yeah, if you can get them into like an L20 or a Tascam 24 or any of the, like a Behringer wing or something, um, you know, there's there's some pretty cool units out there that I actually like, I mean, I use Zoom R20, R2, oh. an R24 and I can get a pretty good, you know, recording of all my stuff like up to 24 tracks. I can bounce up to 48 and, you know, I can have them pretty clean and i just send it to a recording engineer to tighten it up but most of it's already recorded no it's pretty i mean i've been releasing on um bentley records and mojo heads and now i'm on soundcloud repost and i i can get actually that's pretty good sound worth
1: looking into for us because i mean we're one of the things that we're concerned about is that i mean as much as like we're musicians one of the things that we kind of have to uh to, to our fault is that i mean when it comes to audio engineering i mean we we know how to get ourselves sounding right live but a studio is a whole different ball game i mean
0: yeah the studio it's harder with like you know like i have since to have usb interfaces already and and you know the inch lines are pretty good and then if you get the right kind of, you know, audio interfaces, like I go use hardware records that go right to SD card. They don't go through a computer. My 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 R24 can do quarter inch lines and they can do, you know, USB lines and it brings it in and there's no hits. Um, and then you just can like remaster it on other equipment that I went and got preamps and stuff. But over time I bought a bunch of stuff and I can like boost it. To, like the sound level you need to put out on Spotify and stuff and, um, and all the recording thing. But, you know, there's equipment that you can get. And it's some of it's like, you know, very expensive and some of it's not so expensive. Uh, and you can get pretty good results if you invest in it. And I just took the time to do it over time. But there's a lot of cool stuff out there that's actually, you know, pretty decently. Like I said, the Behringer Wing, Tascam 24, the Zoom L20. And the cool thing about the L20, you can actually record, your your practice or your, your like a live like a li- it's for live bands. And every line that goes into it gets recorded to a track. So if you put your bass line into it and the bass player's playing, it goes to a track automatically. The drummer line goes to a track automatically. Everything gets tracked and then once it's tracked you can play them back and you can remaster that track and put effects onto it I, after the track actually fact. worth
1: it. So I actually might look into that
0: so mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really cool machine, and then you can you can pretty much capture everything. So every time you're in your practice, you can go grab it, and then you can bring it into a DAW later into, like, Ableton and move things around, but you've actually captured it on a WAV file, you know, and, you know, 24-bit, you know, 42 mega, uh, megahertz, and it's it's pretty good quality. And if you, you, you bring it to a recording engineer, they can usually fix, fix it and boost it up to 96 and, you know, tighten it up. So they, you know, you can get a lot done where you, you could have a whole album pretty much done um, without even going into the studio, which, you know, it's just a, there's a thing people have to look at now because now this might last a little bit longer. <laughs> if 1918 is in the precursor, and I know a lot about history because I was a history major, uh, these, this type of pandemic tends to have two, three waves um so thinking long term it's probably a good the, investment
1: was it spanish flu spanish flu had like a like a way worse second wave and that was kind of when oh geez they had <laughs> like i
0: think three and this one's on track to be similar um and so like people who think it's over you know there's a whole phase coming around November into like march next year that's if it follows the trajectory of what happened with the Spanish flu, which we're kind of making the same mistakes History again I my soapbox, but people pe- people are wanting to do what people want to do, and Americans like to do what they want to do, but the virus doesn't really care what we want to do. And if you go and you don't have a vaccine, you don't have antivirals, and it's still very late, you have no, human beings don't have an immunity, it's going go to go the second, third wave. <laughs> it's yeah, a, you can I mean, want what you want, but the coronavirus an is going to do what that, it does. Uh,
1: My mom's Catholic, so my mom <laughs> has this old expression that, like, she says all the time: "It's uh, uh man makes plans, God
2: laughs.
0: laughs." Yeah, I mean, since I mean, I, I hate to be a, a bearing of bad tidings, but like in Arizona and places where it's a hundred degrees, they have higher death counts. In New York City and they thought the heat was gonna kill it, and their numbers are not going down below 1%. They're hitting like two, three, four percent. And under the CDC guidelines, if you're at one percent, you oh. shouldn't be going back to work. And if you got places out in the Midwest and the South, they're like three, three and five percent. Um, and so you know, that doesn't bode well for like no, I, this going down
1: like the best case scenario is if, if i had like a best way that this could possibly turn out everyone stay the heck home like just in as much as humanly possible but the issue is that we we
0: yeah we have to work i mean some people have to work i was an uber uh for a while and i had to just stop um just because it, it wasn't tenable and it was dangerous um you know i know there's a lot of Uber still going but like a lot of it has stopped because we just looked at it and said, well, you know what? <laughs> it, it, it's not going to work. <laughs> um, so I'm doing other things. But, you know, it's just, you can want to do it. And I know a bunch of guys that kept on doing it and they got sick. And, it's, you know, you really, it's like hard to not get sick in that, in that type of work. And I did it for a long time as a second job. And you really can't do it. You can try, but eventually it's going to catch up to you. Um, and it's just like you know, yeah. you got too many people in the car. you go going too many places, and it just it just doesn't work. I mean, the only thing that a lot of guys are doing now is delivery. It's very dangerous to try to do the whole, what we used to do, and we used to make money yeah, by having say, like, three, four people, people in the, the car. Money you get, like you know, yeah, that's how much we make. That's how the model works. Now we're being told, like, if you're an Uber, you can't do that. You can't have somebody in the front seat everybody's got to wear a mask and then we got people that don't want to wear masks. <laughs> so I'm like, uh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not playing that game. So I stopped, but um, yeah, it's just hard. I mean, so that was my way of my second gig um, back to just doing in-home, you know, IT consulting. Cause I'm luckily I'm a, I'm a programmer, so I can do that. So I just got ramped up to just doing a lot of programming code. So luckily I have that skill set. but yeah, it's hard, you know, for a lot of people that kind of go outside. And I mean, I was out there, so I do get it. But um, yeah, everybody should just stay safe, do what you can. And like, if you can do things yourself, you know, be the self-reliant person, invest in trying to learn how to engineer as much as you can, go on all the tutorials, tutorials out there on the web on how to use audio interfaces and, you know, how to wire your stuff up so you don't get noise. There's all kinds of tutorials on how to like do your wiring right. Uh, when you do a recording when you start to set up your own recording studio so you don't get white noise and if, if you watch how are you are supposed to use plugs and you know how you're supposed to make things are grounded so you don't get that noise um, there's a lot of cool stuff out there you that's can get that's like what i what i like, to like what about to
1: technology is the fact that like is that kind of information because if i'm being very honest with you like in terms of how i learned how to play guitar i mean i grew up pretty poor i mean we. i mean i had like a first act guitar and that was the only thing i had to my name and it was we my mom couldn't afford like lessons so the, the, she gave me like something to just give me like a little bit of like a base i think it was like a 35 dollar like crash course at like a, a local high school and once i found i was like oh that's how you do that okay and then i went to youtube for tor- for tutorials just about how to play the guitar
0: yeah, there's great stuff out there showing you how to, um, you know, become a recording engineer, like how to make sure that, that you got balanced signals, you don't get white noise, that you can, uh, you know, when you're doing your engineering and you have an audio interface, how to master like what you're looking for to get that sound. And there's a lot of cool tools. And once you, you have them, it's a matter of like people got time. You know, if they're locked down, then you can kind of dive into it and get better at it. I mean, it's a whole art, and if you are in a situation where you can use a recording engineer, yeah, I, I love recording engineers, and it's art in itself, but it's not a bad thing to learn as a, as a musician, you know, yeah, because it gives I mean, you like, more I mean, control over your like, work.
1: There's like the old saying, if you know how to do it yourself, like, you, like you'll like you know what's best for you, and you're not going to be able to, like, be pushed around or, like, kind of grabbed by the nose.
0: yeah. yeah. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, because once you start getting into it, it's art in itself. It's like it's the rest of the painting, you know, because like you, you kind of are in the hands of a recording engineer and producer. If you don't know it and you got to make sure to get what you want to hear, if you actually learn how to do it. And being an electronic musician, we tend to, to have equipment that puts us in a better position to do that, um, because that's what we do with our modes and stuff. We have a lot of equipment that allows us to capture it that way. So, we're pretty close to being like that because we just deal with I, I create sounds. My whole art of being a uh, yeah. electronic musician. There's I a wave synthesis that pumps. happens,
1: and like that's why and you, I, buy a mode. And so, you
0: want
2: apps to control.
0: Yeah, that's why. I mean, so, everything I do with all my equipment is all about sound engineering. So a synthesis is already kind of close to being a sound engineer. (laughs) So, um, so that's not such a big, you know, dive into it, but for, you know, bands that aren't into that, it is, it is a a little bit of a slope to get into it, but yeah, I mean, I I would encourage anybody to look at the things that are affordable and the capabilities and, you know, we might be, uh, you might have to be more self-reliant, so. That's, that's, you know, I, I kind of put that out there, all the bands. I mean, the last couple of bands I've been talking to, people are always like, well, yeah, I'm learning Ableton. I'm getting audio interfaces. I'm buying condenser condenser mics. I'm, I'm doing all kinds. The last couple of bands i talked I mean, to, you, that's, that's and where they were going. Because, I mean, that's um,
1: that, one of the things that I've kind of, like, experienced as this thing is going along, like, non-musically, is how people generally aren't ready for, like, when things, like, actually go down like this. I mean, I mean not not even like in a job sense, I mean or like a way that like someone could see this one coming from like a mile away. But more <laughs> but like more or less I mean oh, yeah. how many people like if they really needed to right now could change a tire on their car? How many people right now could if they like couldn't bring their guitar to guitar center but they but they really want to play their guitar, could change their own strings or how many people would want to
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, a lot of people have, like, lost the ability to do stuff. And, you know, it, it's a lot of it is that you have to kind of be like, you know, that kind of jack all trades. You know, look, you know my history is my grandpa was a coal miner in West Virginia in Morgantown. He built a house, his house from scratch. Because coal miners kind of had to know how to be a carpenter, an electrician, and a plumber. So they had to kind of know everything. As I kind of came up through a tradition of my family, having, you know, the ability to say, well, you know what, I'm, you know, I built some of my modular sense from the boards, you know, um, and so I kind of like, I like to build stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of you know, an information technology guy. I like to tear things apart and put them back together. Um, and so in that way, I'm, I'm in a good position to be able to do stuff because I know how to make my stuff and fix it and change it. But like you said, in right, the world up to this, you could just go and have somebody do it for you. You didn't have to know how to do it. Um, and now people are going to have to go get those kind of old world skills like my grandpa that had, you know, he couldn't get anybody to sell him a house. So he had to build his own. <laughs> you know, it was in a different world where they didn't really like him, you know, who he was <laughs> in in 1930 in Morgantown, West Virginia. Being a black coal miner is like, oh, well, we're not going to sell you the house. So, But just there's, walk, a, but learn there's how the beauty of that.
1: There's, like, the level of, like,
0: people, <laughs> and I, get, did. I don't think that
1: people understand how wonderful self-reliance can be at, at, at a time. Because, I mean, when, like, when you know that you've got your own back hooked oh a yeah. sinker and that there's nothing in the world that's going to stop you from having your own back except, like, something that's so otherworldly, then yeah like you don't like there's things that you don't have to worry about like and i've noticed this in like even in my own circle i mean i've noticed how many people i mean like i said i grew up and i grew up with like very little money i mean i i've i've never seen so many freak out people freak out about how long unemployment. i mean don't get me wrong unemployment takes a lot longer now because of this thing but they're <laughs> they're so surprised at like how long unemployment takes oh, yeah. like Yep, I've been there before, and they tend to take a long time before they even give
2: you
0: a dime. Oh, yeah. I mean, my my daughter was doing, like, hydroponic gardening because she was looking at, you know, global warming. And she's like, well, you know, I need to be more self-reliant. And we went and got solar panels on our house, so we kind of have some capabilities. And, you know, she just doubled down when she saw this thing going in January and she, you know, she's got, like, all all like greenhouses and That's hydroponic great. gardens, and we're, like, growing our own vegetables, and, okay. yeah, we, we're kind of, like, all these people are, like, you got veggies? She's like, yeah, because we're growing our own. <laughs> so, it's like, yeah, well, you know, if seeds don't cost that much in hydroponic capability. My daughter, you know, she's kind of a science geek like myself, and she's, like, I'm going to do hydroponics. I, I, you know, that was back right in now, January. That's, she's she's um, ahead of and, her
1: time and, because I don't think anybody else <laughs> saw farmers literally like just throwing <laughs> and like...
0: growing stuff out. Yeah. <laughs> well, my daughter had a th- thought that she saw stuff going on in Wuhan in December and she's kind of like like always ahead of the curve and she's like, but well, this doesn't look good. And um. I remember, like around December, she told me, "Like, well, this thing looks like like a nineteen eighteen type of thing." And I'm like, "What?" And I I was at work and I wasn't really paying attention. And my daughter's like, "Well, I'm doubling down on my hydroponic she garden." She was right though. I mean, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> and and, it, and she was totally like right because she said, "Well, this thing looks pretty bad." And you know, she was just you know, she's a science person, so she was watching all the science stuff. She's watching news, and she's like, she kind of saw it coming. And she convinced my wife and they, they actually started buying canned and goods moves in anyway. January. Um, and said that this thing was probably probably gonna be bad. And I'm like, everybody was like, How did you guys feel? well they're Asian. I mean, Biden actually said stuff if you watch the news. <laughs> um, but people weren't paying attention, you know, because they were watching sports or they it were doing this doing their life. And then people don't want to be yeah, people don't want to be pessimistic, but we were always kind of more willing to look at like pessimistic things or things that maybe people don't like and it's not happy. Well, yeah, people it's don't like it and that folks. disagrees with. And like, we've their always general kind of comfort. been in that place. They don't and...
1: like to be like disturbed.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I kind of had a plan. It's like, if this thing gets out of control, I'm going to stop. And you know, I filed for my unemployment like like two weeks before it hit the fan because I stopped Ubering at the end of February, like February 22nd. I stopped Ubering us, you know, the, the state of Massachusetts did like a, a state of emergency and said, and then everything started going crazy um, around here in the Northeast, you know, the, by the neck of the woods in New Hampshire, when Massachusetts locked down, we're like, okay, that's the sign. Massachusetts declared a state of emergency. I stopped Ubering on February 22nd and filed for unemployment like on the 23rd. Ahead of like two weeks ahead of the big I had, a, I had a weird feeling. So some, I didn't it. know it was going to be a pandemic,
1: um, but I had a weird feeling something was brewing because, um, th- and this is less on the science side of things, this is more on like the current events, like social, political kind of th- side of things. Um, I read somewhere, I want to think, yeah, I want to yeah. say it was like either late December or probably really early January that Warren Buffett, who's like a billionaire, was sitting on. The largest, like, stock, like, like, threshold of cash in his portfolio that he's ever sat on in his entire career. So, for me, I was, like, thinking, okay, this means either one of two things. He's about to die, or he knows something's about to hit the fan. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, so I have a weird feeling the economy's going to take a plunge. And, lo and behold, uh, it's,
0: (laughs) I think, (laughs) Yeah, why? Well, yeah, I mean, what we saw, like, like I said, around February twenty second, what really kicked out for me is a big biotech firm in Cambridge, Boston. Right? Um, they, uh, they actually uh, a company called Biogen. Eighty eight people that went to a convention center got the virus, and 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 that that to me with my daughter who's kind of a science person said well that's going to cause a cluster that's going to go exponential It's going to go like five six times and that number um, and, and it went way more than that it probably went 20 30 times but um, that's when I said well yeah I got to get out of it because I was going into Boston taking people to Logan as an Uber and then that whole area started getting to be a problem uh, around that time And we said, you know, that's not going to be good. The fact that we had 88 people in Boston Mass get the coronavirus was supposed to be something that they should have never got here, like H1N1 or SARS. That's what people didn't understand. I kind of knew that because I actually was living in Tokyo in 2004 during during SARS. And so we had some experience. My family had lived in Tokyo. And, you know, they had really good procedures that kept that from going crazy. Um, but here the protocols weren't followed, you know, like 40,000 to 400,000 people were allowed to travel out of Wuhan around the world through airline travel that normally should have would have gotten locked down because they didn't get locked down. When I saw that 88 of them had shown up in Boston, I said, well, that, that, that's like, like Ebola showing up in Boston. That's something that like, shouldn't happen. And once you see that, I saw that. I said, well, that's "Well," and to your point not, about the Ebola that means thing, I mean, Ebola wrong. was a scary one um. all of its own.
1: I mean, Ebola is like more like I want to say it's oh, scary, yeah. scary in terms of but.
0: that's even nightmare. It's like smallpox. I mean, it's like the nightmare scenario. But this is pretty yeah. close huh? <laughs> to to be being like it's it's something you see in a contagion movie, like a science fiction movie. It, it, you know, protocols are supposed to lock the people down. They were should no one should have traveled out of Wuhan once they realized what was going on, and you know, travel to Europe really kind of screwed us up. We had all all these travelers that came out of China, went to Europe, and then Europe came to, to the U.S. and Canada and everywhere else. And airline travel and the cruise ship travel really like blew us out because people didn't follow protocols and didn't lock people down. Like during H1N1 and SARS, people got locked down for like 15, 20 days and weren't allowed to travel back. And when I was in Tokyo, there were people in Hong Kong and Tokyo that weren't allowed to go back to the U.S. They were told to stay in quarantine and those those procedures weren't followed for whatever reason. Um, And that's why where we are. But, um, you know, I was in that time when when they were followed and we didn't get. it. Uh, So it's something that wasn't done. That was I mean, that, done that's before. the thing that kind
1: of is baffling to me because we now kind we're, of we're where we are by now. Like, I mean, as, as, a, as a people, I mean, like, it's not to say that we don't have historical precedent for how these things typically are either avoided or how they typically start. Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, the main, main thing was that anybody that was in Wuhan, anybody that was in that area when SARS happened, you know, they locked down. South Korea, they locked down Tokyo. They, they pretty much what they did is they, they, they did the contact tracing. They, they, they found the first carriers and they, they contact traced them all and they locked them into quarantine. We no, totally no. didn't box that. I mean, it, and no. it, it, it most likely is because Wuhan was a big international manufacturing base and you had tons of expats, like I was an expat um, back in Tokyo 2004, and the expats are kind of white collar, high end people, and they all kind of complained they didn't want to be in lockdown. They complained back in 2004, but the, the government said, We don't care if you don't want to be in quarantine, you got to be in quarantine. But in this situation, they pulled their favors, and we got this. Uh, when the government should have been more forceful and said, We don't care if you're a CEO, I don't care if you're a director you need to be in quarantine for 14, 20 days. We need to watch you and then you're not going anywhere until you're out. And that's the interesting part about this whole course.
1: thing. It's because, I mean, um, on the one hand, know. like you, you always have the people who are like, they're trying to trample on on like my individual freedoms. Meanwhile, you're carrying something which could potentially kill...
0: Well, that's the protocol. Is It's a dangerous thing and you... Your freedom is understandable, but if you have a disease that there's no human immunity to like SARS or H1N1 yeah, well, those protocols like were followed your
1: freedom does, your freedom so ends if... when it begins to infringe on like the rights and like freedoms of like other people and like in this case the right to live should be like <laughs> yeah like I, I would
0: yeah when they had all these examples of expats that went to Seattle that went to New York and they were asymptomatic and they spread it on the plane, they spread it on the train, they spread it in the station, and it just went exponential, which it would if you run the, the protocols and you look at the history. Because I was, I was in the middle of a potential pandemic back in 2004 when I was in Tokyo, and it was scary. And We were told we couldn't really go back home until they really, and I wasn't scheduled to go, so it wasn't a big deal to me. I was there for two years, and I just got there. And so I wasn't in a situation where I needed to go back home. But anybody that wanted to go back home for like a vacation or whatever, they were kind of, oh, I'm inconvenienced. They won't let me go. Like about, you shouldn't be going anyway. here's the thing.
1: <laughs> if they have you under quarantine, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to like abuse you or, or torture you.
0: No, you just can't go. Just, they, they, they had deals. In, I mean, Tokyo is one of the best cities in the world. I mean, quarantine in Tokyo wasn't a big hassle. Quarantine in Wuhan wouldn't have been a big hassle to an expat. It's just, you couldn't do what you wanted that moment. And, you know, that's, you know, in hindsight, people are going to have to, you know, in the future, be more willing to say, you know, if there's something like that, you gotta be, you gotta follow it. You know, there's no exception because you're this type of person. Um, you, 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 it, it's something that you should do for your fellow man. You know, we had a breakdown and, um, you know, empathy for your fellow man, you know, my opinion, the people... Decided what, what they wanted to do. Yeah, what they wanted to do is I'm more like, important. Okay. <laughs> what
1: you want to do also has the uh, the little caveat of possibly killing hundreds, if not millions of people as well, though. So I, I, that's what
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a shame. It's yeah, that's where right. we are. You know, I hate to get into the politics of it, but, you know, we are living in a situation. But, you know, history like, I'm a big history buff, you know, as a history major. And, uh, You know, people really need (laughs) to. You know, everybody's so technical today, and people don't like to read. But you know, people need to go back in this time since we have time and read about the Spanish flu. People really need to read about what happened, and 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 before they go and they yell at somebody for telling them to put a mask on, they need to read some information um, so they can get some context. Um, <laughs> last I mean, I was you're, you're, you're absolutely on
1: the money though and like honestly but, um... it's good to speak to a history major about this one because it's kind of when you think about it like if like everyone like has like in, in this country like to have an American education means you were taught about what like a hundred years ago was like you were taught about what two hundred years ago was like and you and people generally have like some kind of a knowledge about the fact that the Great Depression was a thing Far right fascism in Europe was a thing, and like there are so many mistakes that consistently mm-hmm. get repeated, and it's it's like people don't know history. And I there's that old saying that people who don't know history.
0: Yeah, well, there's some people in our southland, in our Midwest, they're making mm-hmm. the 1918 mistake. And they, they're doing it for certain reasons. and don't understand. And these are people that should know history because they're in government. Um, it's, it's, like, it's a tragedy for the people that live in those states. All I can say is anybody listening that lives there, you know, do what you think is right. You know, for, for your own family's sake, don't listen to somebody who has ulterior motives for their own personal gratification. Because, um, uh, you know, you have one life and like I hear people saying, well, you know, there's more things. There's more things to, to life, life than, than life. living. Like, I don't know something else that you
2: can't enjoy.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's like I guess, I guess that's somebody that's gonna stay in the basement uh, and want I, me to go that, to the that's front so, line. You're,
2: you're this is this
0: is
1: definitely a <laughs> breach of empathy for humanity. Like in the weirdest.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, there's people who want to do herd human in immunity. There's there's a there's a certain group of people in this country that say, okay. It's too expensive. Let everybody go out. We'll take um, like a 2% hit, a 2 to you know, like 6% hit of the American population because we'll get hurt in the community. And, you know, I don't know. It's like, I'm willing to take that cost because I just don't want to be bothered with um, being more empathetic. And I think that has to be looked at in the lens of history about like what people did in 1932 and 33. Uh, you know, there are certain people in Germany that had kind of beliefs that were very unempathetic. Um, and so people need to look at Americans that talk like that and, <laughs> and think no. about what, what that type of American is acting like. So <laughs> okay. um, that's not very, uh, you know, everybody's talking about we are one there we are one yeah, but yeah, it's some like, we're, like that have guts. we're we're
1: one until everyone decides <laughs> that they're like inconvenienced and then like, they're all of a sudden saying oh look well, we, we, we don't want unity we want our individual but, and, and it's not even like
0: well there's certain people that say yeah. that we are one and you don't need test and then they get tested every day yeah. and there's other people that can't get a test and then you say it doesn't matter that you that you don't need test and there's a certain class of people that are getting tests every day multiple times a day, and there's other people who don't. So then you have to start wondering. Well, I think
1: it should be no, like, it should be no surprise on? that like, it's corruption at its finest. I mean, you just take a, a good look at it, and like, there's nothing about this that doesn't reek of some semblance of corruption. I mean, you look at it, and the way it's handled
0: Yeah, you, you know, we, we fought Henry VIII so that we wouldn't have uh, an aristocracy. Yeah. And and it seems like there's certain people that that somehow think they're gonna get the shine off the aristocratic oh, yeah. shoe oh. <laughs> and somehow become have, have a Horatio Alger myth. Um, but but I I don't understand people like that. It's like okay, well you drive a truck and this is a billionaire, and you're gonna get the shine off the shoe and magically maybe become a billionaire like that. That's a fantasy, you know. So why would you? Do what's in their interest and not in your interest
1: i think that people want to think that, that that's going to help you.
0: when the american ethos is not to do that it can be and to be more cynical that
1: don't like <laughs> understand that these are people who have ulterior motives and every single time like someone's got the oh you can do it as long as you 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 put on your bootstraps and you you, you do the whole and every
0: Oh no! Great. Well, I believe in hard work. I mean, I take three, four jobs, but you know, my whole thing. Yeah, but my whole problem is, is when people do things like cronyism, and you know, it's like there's a lot of behaviors happening here that aren't actually in the American spirit. They're more in the Stalin spirit. They're more in the Castro spirit. You know, for people who who were so anti-communist, and if you look at the behavior. Um, there, there's some behaviors here that don't jibe with like federalism, that don't jibe with individualism, they jibe with totalitarianism. And so the problem people are, are getting a shiny object in front of them and not understanding there's somebody who's, who's pulling like a Pinochet or a Stalinist type of behavior and then wrapping themselves in a flag and the shiny object is making you ignore and that's what i find really the interesting totalitarianism like,
1: like you're absolutely right it's like you have like it's like the worst aspects of communism too in the sense that like you every like nothing is important but the state or like in this case i guess our case would be like the economy and the state of the the current world but at, at the same time like that that's in in communist russia eyes that was the same mentality it's just it wasn't about the economy
0: as much as it was about, like, the USSR. Yeah. Which, which, what we've kind of yes. turned into is a former government called feudalism. Uh,
2: yes. And what we
0: have are aristocratic, you know, 1% that own 90% of the property and assets. And we have people who are more like indentured servants with little access to anything within the American construct being told that that somehow they're going to get to be in that 1%. And that's like an impossibility. And they are buying something that Madison and Adams and Washington fought against. And so I would just argue with any American need to understand, they need to read the Federalist Papers. They need to read the Constitution. They need to read the Articles of Confederation and then look at the behaviors that are occurring and see if it jibes with what the federalist papers and the constitution itself say. Uh, and if you're you it, back and to you to looked looked at it, inspired see those, that it those
1: documents in the first place. I <laughs> mean at the root of all of those papers you have John Locke and you have people like Aristotle and John Locke and Aristotle people can basically kind kind of make it seem like they were like Conservative in the sense that they were talking about, like, building yourself up by your bootstraps or being a part of, like, a middle class or a working class. But at the same time, John Locke has a has a great part about those acorns where mm-hmm. he's talking about, like, you should take it, like, enough that you can basically earn what you earn, but not so much that you impede on the progress of others to sustain what they want if they're going to do something about it. And Aristotle was for a class of people who were, like, willing to do something to, like, basically, like, up like obtain their middle-class status, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it was unattainable. You have to, like, scrap and scrape.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, American belief is, like, you know, you can, you know, build yourself up, but the problem is, you know, in, in the world where they lived, they didn't have mm-hmm. people making 10,000 times more than the average salary you know, and they didn't have constructs that keep you from being able to, like, own a farm and own, like, uh, 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 you know, be a blacksmith, you know, be a plumber, be, be a, you know, an artisan. Um, and so we, we've kind of devolved into, you know, uh, industrial system that uses, you know, labor from a communist country and then doesn't encourage labor in our own country. you
2: know. <laughs> so
0: all of our supply chains, I'm an IT guy, all of our supply chains are like in places like Wuhan. And we don't have our materials here because we don't build the stuff here. <laughs> and if you don't build stuff, the wealth being generated in the world now is in Seoul and Wuhan. The people have... You know, businesses that actually build stuff. I find even more frightening is how those jobs are
1: over there, and like that's Um, human rights violations all the way. And it's been that way for a while.
0: Yeah, it's like the worst aspects of capitalism because you you have a communist country that forces almost indentured servitude in manufacturing. You know, they have a white collar that does jobs like our white collar, but their blue collar doesn't have any rights um and so then you've got very low cost and then you have all this production and then the people in the, in the aristocracy level across the world in the west and in in, in in the east are you know on the back so even pretty much, about all that so wait, i wait. have a
1: weird feeling that sooner or later <laughs> it's only a matter of time before those jobs are replaced too and that's what's even scary.
0: Going by robots, yeah, where well, everything's going to go to robots, and if you have everything going robotic, well, that's the other thing. It's like, know, I then, mean, what, what like, the, people, the, the, the people
2: who are blue collar <laughs> and have hardly any rights? Are they
1: just going to be doing nothing? Because, like, I mean, it's not like you, you...
0: well, the problem with, with the feudal systems and communist systems are yeah, historically have massive prison systems. And, you know, if you look at so the Soviet Union had massive amounts of prisons all over the Soviet Union, that when people weren't workers, they were slave workers in a prison. Chinese system has the same thing. Our system is starting to do the same thing. Um, so that is the trajectory that you get when you get, uh, you know, political systems that become un, unequal. At, at the the imbalance of our system is tilting toward what you saw in the Soviet Union, what you still see in China, and it's not you know what you saw in Chile in the seventies, you, know, you know massive prison structures, uh, you know to put those people in, um, and that's something that people need to look at what they're doing. You know you need to look at what is going on, and it's not happy talk, but you have to start questioning. How things are running, and um, this is a time where people should take that time to kind of think about how how the world is running and wh- what you need to do to make it better for the next generation. Because if we just keep on being consumers and not thinking, uh, yeah, you know, I, I, some I mean, of our choices are kind that's of taken away. From...
1: That's what's weird about this this current time is like how I want to say blind. I don't know if the word is blind or ignorant or just in the dark about how close to these things we can get when we don't do anything about certain things. I mean, like, like we have a, a system of checks and balances at the moment that for all intents and purposes was supposed to be put in place to keep things in check and to keep things in balance. And it's like, it might as well not exist in some aspects. and,
0: Well, yeah, I mean, all the gates have been, you know, the coronavirus is like a, an actual real, like, uh, a, a actual yeah, representation it. of what's happened to our political system. The gate yeah. fell apart, and the gates in our political system at the same time fell apart, which, like you know, caused the disaster to be exponentially worse than it had to be. Um, and because of all, guard, all what Madison and you know, all of our, the great desi- people who designed our system didn't anticipate that the Senate wouldn't do its job. The, the, the president is not a monarch and is never supposed to have unlimited power. But our presidency now is way beyond what it should be based on the structure of what they wanted it to be. And, and it, there's going to have to be a reckoning on how much presidential power is there versus congressional power? Now, regardless of what party you're in, you're going to want to be uh, well aware that the, you you don't want your president to be a monarch, to be Henry VIII. They should one man should not be able to decide that they're not going to build PPE, that they're not going to go and um, do tests because he doesn't want to do it. I mean, how can you have a system that says? One man can take apart the the the, um, the 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 agency that's supposed to look at Pam Dedrick's because he wants to take the money and put it to a wall. You're going to let somebody knock all the gates down. That is not anticipated in American history that our our Congress would allow the president to do that. It was supposed to be a check. Say if you do something that's unreasonable, they're going to check you. And what we have now is a system that does not check you if that person happened no, to be I, in the same party. And that is not supposed to happen that way. And okay. so we are in a situation because people I allowed their politics to override the common that. sense. <laughs> 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 and, you know, it's people get mad and I'm sure there are people that won't like where I went with this episode, but, you know, we're in a different time mm-hmm. and I think people, should be allowed, you know. Part of being an American, we have a right to say what we want to say, and this is political speech or speech, and which it's free, and we get to speak our mind. But it's an informed mind, and people, if they're honest about oh, it, no, go check that what you've we said you know, here. Is a I've lie today. As a matter of fact, exactly it's interesting that,
1: Like it, it, this started off as like more of a thing about like the band, but at the same time, it like moved into something that is definitely a discussion worth that's worth having, and it's definitely a discussion that's worth looking at because. Like, people are asking, why is this all happening right now? And the answer is before your very eyes, and there is there is a detailed response to it, and you can actually get to the root of how we wound up exactly where we are right today if you just pay attention. I, I think that, like, in an age of information, like, the ignorance to, like, decide what you want to know and what you don't want to know, that's such a... That's such a-
0: Well, I, I think it's easier for people to zone out and you know binge watch Netflix. Yep,
2: that's than actually
0: to, right. to actually go at some 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 fat some fat. I And mean, You know, happy talk makes you feel good. You know, luckily my daughter's twenty years old, so I don't have to talk <laughs> like I'm talking to t- teletubbies. Yeah, you know. But I understand, well, parents. Okay, yep. if you got little young children, you don't want to make them scared. That's fine. But but. Beyond that, you know, you should still have a talk with your significant other about what well, what's going on, not that just I've binge watching kind of Netflix. <laughs>